We pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask you to work through your word this morning to bring us comfort, peace, and motivation, and bring us focus as we view ourselves and our lives as part of your story and part of your plan. Please bless our dive into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever bumped into a famous person, but you weren't expecting to? Can you raise your hand if this has ever happened to you? So it's, just, it's funny when it happens because you're like, you see a person and then all of a sudden you, the first reaction is like, is anybody else seeing this? Right? So this has happened to me multiple times in the past few months. One time I was playing at the playground with my kids. Kids are playing, dads are standing around doing dad stuff, like look at their phone and drink their coffee. And I looked over at the other dad and I was like, oh, I think that's Matt Ryan. And it was Matt Ryan, the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons. I'm just like, what's up, you know? Um, another time, I was walking through the crowd. Uh, this is just a few months ago. I was going to a baseball game, and I was squeezing my way through this very busy crowd. And then the guy squeezing his way ahead of me looked familiar. He had his, his hoodie up, but he turned a couple times. And, and then he turned again, and I was like, Joseph Martinez, what's up? And he was just walking. And I was right next to him, and I said, like, we love you, man. I patted him on the back. He probably thought it was a little bit weird. Um, but, like, you have this reaction where, and everyone was doing it, like, with Joseph, where everyone's like, I think it's him, I think it's him. Um, so, I tried to not be weird, and I didn't ask for a picture or an autograph. I tried to just play it cool. Okay, Matt Ryan, yep, I'm tired too. I was up with my kids like you. Um, so, I just tried to play it cool, but it still is a cool story. And you probably have your own stories. Maybe you'll tell some to me after church of someone famous that you just, like, bumped into in a casual environment. Um, but you know what would not be a cool story? If I didn't recognize them at all. Right? Because you could walk past a famous person. I mean, it could be the President of the United States sitting next to you on MARTA. And if you don't know who he is, then it's not really a story. The whole moment is gone. Um, so for the past few weeks, as you know, we've been working through this sermon series, and it's called, What If God Was One of Us? And we've been discussing just this crazy, audacious idea that what if... God came down and, and became a human being and just lived regular human life like right next to us as a regular person. And there was a song about this in the 90s that was called What If God Was One of Us. But the idea is, wouldn't this be so cool? Well, it would be cool, but only if people recognized him. If God was among us and everybody walked right past him, then it really wouldn't be much of a story. Now, as Christians, we know that what if God was one of us is not a hypothetical concept because God did become one of us. And this is who Jesus was. God who we can't see, God who we know is up there somewhere, God became one of us, a person you could hug and talk to and hear from. This is who Jesus was. And so we've been walking through the last several weeks through Jesus' life but what's interesting about the first, really, 30 years about Jesus' life is that with the exception of a couple shepherds on Christmas, a couple of wise men on Epiphany, and whoever was really paying attention at the temple when he's 12 years old, most people didn't recognize him. Most people did not realize right away that Jesus was the Son of God and the promised Savior. But at the day of his baptism, all of that changed. Jesus' baptism marks the official start of his public ministry. 
and it launches him into, from relative obscurity into this three-year ministry where he becomes the most influential, the most polarizing, and the most important figure that has ever lived in the history of the world. It all starts with his baptism. So this took place when Jesus was about 30 years old, and it involved an, it involved an individual named John the Baptist. So here's what Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 3 of his gospel. He says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, so he's setting it into this time slot, this is when the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, maybe John the Baptist is a little bit familiar to you, uh, because we talked about him, as you might recall, a little bit in December. And we talked about how his unusual dress and lifestyle was not just John being eccentric, but he was mimicking the style of Old Testament prophets like Elijah. And we talked in December about how people went out to hear him preach. People went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Everybody wanted to hear John the Baptist's message. And also in December, we talked about how his ministry fulfilled the words of Isaiah, who had written that before the Savior came, there was going to be a voice in the wilderness calling, prepare the way for the Lord. John, the Baptist, was that voice. And so his ministry set the table for the ministry of Jesus. Something we didn't talk about, though, in December, that maybe is worth spending a minute or two on this morning, is this question. Where in the world did John come up with the idea for baptism? Have you ever thought about that? Where did baptism come from? Was John the Baptist sitting up one night and he's like, I've got it. No. John the Baptist did not invent baptism. And as our recent graduates from Bible Basics class know, because we've talked about this, the word baptism in Greek simply just means washing. Baptism means washing. And so people were used to washing. They washed their hands. They washed the dishes. But people were also used to religious washings. Like in the Jewish faith, there were all kinds of religious washings. In the Law of Moses, it said that before a person became a priest, they had to be ceremonially washed to start that process. There were a bunch of different times as an Israelite, if you had become ceremonially unclean, you would need to be ceremonially washed uh, you know, for that purpose. Or even if someone converted from a different religion to become Jewish and part of the Jewish faith, a Gentile wants to join the Jewish faith, they would have to wash. They would have to be baptized, was the word for it. Uh, and there were even baptismal little uh, fountains and tubs around the temple to serve these different ceremonial purposes. So John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. It just means washing, and they had religious washings that were going on. This is not a totally unique thing. But here was John's unique twist on it. He was preaching, Luke tells us, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was different than anything in the Jewish Old Testament law so far. A washing of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John was saying this. Our people, the Jews, the Israelites, we've been waiting for this promised Savior for thousands of years, the whole point of the promise is he is going to come rescue us from our sins. 
We've been doing all these sacrifices and none of them are really taking our sins away. It's all symbolizing the big one and the big one is here. The Savior from sins is here. And with baptism, John is saying, if you want to sign up for his kingdom in advance, then come on down into the water and sign up. And this is what people were doing. So does that make sense? That was John's baptism. He took this existing idea of a religious washing and he channeled it directly into the forgiveness of sins and the promised Savior. But John didn't just baptize people. John was also a preacher, right? And his preaching was so compelling, people would come to listen from all around. In fact, his preaching was so compelling, people wondered if John might be the Savior, the Messiah. But John assured them he was not. He said, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you, he will wash you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Then John said this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you bunch of non-farmers understand this metaphor? Like, what is a winnowing fork? Do you eat with it? So, I'm not a farmer. This is geared at an audience of people who are very familiar with farming. So I had to study this and research this, but from what I've been told, when you are harvesting wheat, at the end of the harvest, you have a nice big pile of wheat kernels, but there's a problem. And the problem is it's mixed in with dust and dirt and all these wispy little pieces of the plant. And if you were to take all of this and grind it up and make it into flour, it would be nasty. And then how are you going to wash it? If you take a hose and hose it down, if you pour water all over it, it just turns into a muddy slush and becomes even nastier. The only way to do this, before they mechanized the process for modern times, what they used to do is they would take this big fork called a winnowing fork, it's kind of like a pitchfork, and they would wait for a windy day, and the farmers would just take this pile of stuff and toss it up in the air. The wind would blow the straw out and the wispy plant pieces out, and it would blow the dust off, and those big heavy kernels of wheat would fall down to the ground. By the end of your winnowing day, you'd have a big pile of relatively clean wheat kernels, and then you'd have a big pile of all the junk, which was called chaff. And what they did with the kernels is they stored them in the barn. What they did with the chaff was they just set it on fire, kind of like burning leaves in the fall, and just got rid of it. So John takes this process that all of his listeners would have been very familiar with, and in an extremely vivid way, he puts them into this story. He says the Savior's coming, but he's got his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor, and he's going to be gathering his wheat into his barn, but the chaff is going to be burned up with unquenchable fire. And the people are going, oh. <laughs> so here's the question from John the Baptist. Which would you rather be, wheat or chaff? It's not a super hard choice, right? Of course we would rather be the wheat snuggled up safely in the warm, safe barn while the chaff is getting burned outside. And if we want to take this to a spiritual level, which is exactly what John is doing, of course we want to be in God's barn. Of course we'd want to be snuggled up safe in heaven, right? Rather than being God's enemies who are getting destroyed in the fires of hell. Who doesn't want to be on God's side? Who doesn't want to be safe with God forever? 
who doesn't want to know that after you die, there is going to be something good, even wonderful, waiting for you? Of course we all want that. But how do we get there? How do we become a part of God's harvest? And how do we ensure that in the end we're going to end up as wheat and not as chaff? Well, the Jewish leaders at the time of John and Jesus, they thought that they had this all figured out. And their solution for it was laws. God had given his people some laws through the prophet Moses and other prophets, so they added more and more and more laws, all these very strict laws governing every aspect of your behavior, and they figured if you work really hard at these laws and prove you're a good person, then that's how you can prove to God that that you're going to be good enough to keep. But they were missing something. And what they were missing was the unfortunate fact that all of us are born into this world as chaff. I mean, that's the real problem that human beings are facing, is that we are born into this world by nature sinful. That doesn't mean that we are born into this world and we would never admit that there's a God. I think naturally, even intellectually, we're okay with the existence of a higher power. But the problem is we can't deal with a God unless we're dealing with him on our terms. So the way we are wired with our sinful nature is we want God to do things our way. We want God to run the world how we would like to see it be run. We want God to answer all our prayers the way that we want them answered. And really, we want to be our own God. And so our desire for power and control over our own life blocks out God as being the one that we submit to. And our desire for power and control over our own life, it affects our relationships, the people around us, the way we think, the way we talk. And it certainly affects the way we view God's word. This is exactly what the religious leaders at John and Jesus' time were doing. They had taken God's word, which is about the Savior, and they had turned it into this manual of rules, where if you follow all the rules, you can get yourself to heaven. John is teaching, it's not going to work. By nature, we're too far gone. So if we are going to be rescued on the day of harvest, if we are really going to go to heaven and be with God, if we are really going to be sure that there's something good, even wonderful, waiting for us after we die, the only way it's going to happen is for a Savior to intervene. And of course, this was the point of the whole Jewish faith. And this was the point of the entire Old Testament. And this is what John is telling the people. This is what our forefathers have been waiting for. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and going all the way back to Adam and Eve. These original promises from God were not about some rules how you can make yourself into a better person. These promises were how God is going to send a Savior to fulfill all the rules for you, and he is going to rescue you. In him, for free, with no work of your own, you're going to be forgiven of your sins and purified and washed, made clean, given a new status, so that when that day of harvest comes, you can be certain you have nothing to fear. You're going to be in the barn with the wheat. You're going to be safe in the arms of your Heavenly Father forever. The Savior is going to forgive your sins for free, John says. And if this is what you want, then come on down to the water and sign up in advance. And hundreds, thousands of people did. But then one day Jesus came down to the water. As we mentioned, he's a totally ordinary-looking guy from Nazareth. He's lived a very quiet and normal life. He just looks like another member of the crowd. 
But then this happens. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And everybody heard it. So that's kind of hard to miss. This is kind of an obvious sign that the Savior is here when God speaks from heaven and says, this one is the Savior. And so the entire trajectory of Jesus' life changed after this. The rumor began to spread like wildfire that that promised Messiah and Savior had come. And John the Baptist got even bolder with his message. The next time he was around a crowd of people and Jesus walked by, John said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I know this, because when I baptized him, we all heard God's voice, and it said so. John the Baptist recognizes his job is done, and so he starts shifting his disciples to go be Jesus' disciples and Jesus' followers. In a very real way, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So for the rest of this series, we're going to be following the next three years, where Jesus embarks on this three-year time of preaching and teaching and performing miracles, sometimes in front of thousands of people. And it's going to culminate in him going down to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And there he'll be arrested, attacked by his enemies, and killed. Physically, his life will be ended on that cross. But spiritually speaking, something even deeper will be happening. On that cross... God will burn him up like chaff for all the sins of the world so that instead we can be the wheat and we can be safely gathered into God's kingdom in heaven. And then, of course, Jesus rose from the dead. So we'll get to all of this. It's going to be an action-packed next few months walking through Jesus' life. But for now, we just pause at Jesus' baptism and we see that for the first time, publicly, in a big way, he's being recognized as the Son of God. And that's what Jesus' baptism means for the tra trajectory of his life and for his ministry. But what does Jesus' baptism mean for us? What does Jesus' baptism mean for you? Well, we find that answer, not on this day, but we find it on a day three years later. After Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and appeared to people over and over, Jesus stood on a mountaintop, and he was ready to ascend into heaven. This was the last words he was going to speak to his disciples before he left physically and left them in charge of the church. And Jesus gave them his great commission. And here is how he put it. He said, I want you to go and make more disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And you see what Jesus is doing in these words of the Great Commission. He's changing baptism one more time. John the Baptist had taken this vague idea of a spiritual washing, and he had turned it into repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and it's focused on the Savior. Jesus now takes that slightly more tightened-up concept and makes it into this specific tool that he's going to use down through the ages. This is now baptism in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this is the means by which Jesus is going to call more people into his family for years and generations and millennia to come. 
And so we have to think of it this way because Jesus is God and he knows all things and he exists in an eternal presence. Jesus knows all things. And as he is being baptized, as the water is being poured over his head, Jesus has got to be thinking of other water pouring over other heads, heads like yours and mine washing our sins away, covering us with his righteousness, marking us as children of God and making us heirs of eternal life, forming for us an identity that nobody can ever take away from us. I want you to really think about this. As Jesus is having that water poured over his head, he can see all things because he's God, and so he sees everything that you will ever do in your life. He sees all your hard work, in all of your laziness. He sees all of your successes and all of your failures. He sees all your insecurities. He sees all your relationships, the people that love you and the people that hate you, the people that validate you and the people that can't stand you. He sees every ounce of your sin and your guilt and your shame. Jesus sees everything about you coming from you. And that his baptism, he is already saying none of that is going to be what defines you because you are going to be defined by something completely different and separate from you. You are going to be given an identity by God which no one, no one can take away from you. Who the Son sets free is free indeed and your identity is going to be a child of God. This is who you are. Today we got to welcome uh, several new members to our church. And is this not really what a church is? A church is not a group of people who all are exactly the same. We don't all look exactly the same. We don't all think exactly the same. We don't all act exactly the same. But what a church is, is it's a group of people who share a common identity. An identity that is outside of ourself, but which has given, been given to us by God, and thus an identity that no one can take away from us. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of this Jesus made available at his baptism. And all of this Jesus distributed personally to you at yours. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus your Savior. Amen.